Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Welcome to the Victory Project. We're all here because we believe in the mission. What are we doing? Changing, Changing the, world. the world. What are we doing? Changing, Changing the, the world. world. That's right. That's Chris Pine in utopian cult leader mode from Olivia Wilde's Don't Worry Darling. The film topped last weekend's box office, but wasn't a hit among critics. Hey, I believe in the Victory Project mission, Adam. Oh, I know you do. This week, we've got a review of Don't Worry Darling and our top five utopias gone wrong. That and more. What are we doing? It's ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Last week, Josh, before the movie made it to theaters, you tweeted, are we allowed to like Don't Worry Darling yet? Because it's actually quite good. Critical consensus for the most part disagrees with you for what it's worth. It's got a 38% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, 47 on Metacritic. But I'm guessing, knowing you as I do, all the questions about mysterious plane crashes and head-scratching reveals have only hardened your resolve about this movie, haven't they? Yeah, you, you do know me way too well, Adam. The, the plane crash, so much angst about that little plane crash. Oh, man, that's like number 12 on my list. <laughs> Later in the show, we'll get to that list, perhaps, as we discuss Olivia Wilde's Don't Worry Darling, including some spoiler talk because I don't know how else you talk about this movie. But first... We're going to jump into the top five inspired by Don't Worry Darling. And despite the feelings I have for that movie that you may be catching on to, I followed that film as a model pretty closely when forming my list of utopias gone wrong. How did you come at it, Josh? Yeah, I did the same. And I was relieved. I saw Don't Worry Darling maybe a week or so before you did, but after we had settled pretty much on this top five. And so I was relieved to see, yeah, this works. This movie does work as a utopia gone wrong. Now, I do need to make a little bit of a distinction, and this is how Don't Worry Darling does apply. For me, these were movies that needed to start as utopias. So the characters there for the most part, at least mm-hmm. at the beginning, do feel like they are in a utopian place. So that's distinct from saying it being an obvious dystopia. That's great for some. 
that is a utopia for some, but for the most people, it's a dystopia. I set those aside and tried to narrow down my list in that way. So I think that was a distinction some listeners went back and forth on Twitter when we asked for suggestions. Thank you for all of those. Thanks to Betty Lavendero, our PA, for putting together an initial list for us to work from. And yeah, it was a good and fun group of movies to consider. Yeah, the question I asked myself rhetorically, because we are on the same page here, is wouldn't a utopia gone wrong be a dystopia? Yes. And that, that really is the crucial question. That isn't this list because we've already done our favorite movie dystopias twice, actually. It was episode number 88 of this show with Sam, and it was episode number 392, a fairly early episode after you joined the show in 2012. So one way to come at what is a utopia gone wrong is to explain what it isn't. And I'll say The Matrix, for example, on my list back in 2012. That's a dystopia. It's not a utopia gone wrong, to your point, Josh, because the main character at no point believes he is living in a perfect world. Neo is an unsatisfied, unfulfilled office drone. He does have an epiphany. He has an awakening about the true nature of the world he inhabits, which I do think is necessary for this list, but it's just not the type of awakening we're talking about. Snowpiercer, big fan of that Bong Joon-ho film. I know some people are living the good life on that train. Mm -hmm. Our main characters are living a miserable one. That's not a utopia. I'll go with Metropolis, also on my 2012 list. Mm. A dystopia. I think maybe Gattaca is a dystopia. Logan's Run may, in fact, be a dystopia. But the characters start out believing their lives are, in that pleasure dome, perfect. And come to realize they want out, which means Logan's run absolutely qualifies for this list. Unfortunately, it's not particularly good. (laughs) So you can see how the line is a little blurry. I didn't include Metropolis either, though I thought about it. It came up a lot as a suggestion. Perhaps you could find a way to squeeze it on. But that and the fact that I've had it on a handful of lists in the past decade or so, I did set it aside. All right, let's get started. Your number five Utopia gone wrong. My number five is The Beach. Going back to 2000, this is from director Danny Boyle, who is adapting a novel by someone who would become a regular collaborator of Boyle's and then a director in his own right, Alex Garland, Ex Machina, Annihilation, and Men, of course. Here in The Beach, we have Leonardo DiCaprio playing a traveler and adventurer who learns about this secret idyllic community on a pristine island that is off Thailand. When he arrives and finds this community, how do we know it's a utopia? Well, it's led by Tilda Swinton, for one thing. But also, when the group visits the secluded beach of the title, we hear Moby's Porcelain on the soundtrack. (laughs) That song, Adam, ubiquitous around 2000. You could not get away from it. And Boyle always did know how to put together a soundtrack for his films. And he did the same here for the beach. So that's the utopia. What goes wrong? Well, DiCaprio's Richard convinces a French couple that he meets to seek out this island with him, largely because he has romantic designs on the woman, played by Virginie Ledoyen. That leads to a series of sexual betrayals that undermine this particular paradise. 
Now, you know my rule for puns, Adam. They're okay in headlines and titles. And I have to say, I do love the headline that, I don't know, it might have been me, it might have been my editor at the time, Wendy Fox Weber, film spotting listener, the one that was given to my 2000 review of The Beach, Paradise Lust. That just captures both the utopia of the movie and what makes it go wrong. Here, it is unbridled lust that is essentially the apple in the Garden of Eden. Now, I know many people consider The Beach a minor Danny Boyle film, but I'm a big fan, loved it when it first came out, and for me, it was a great fit for this list. A disappointment for me in 2000 when I saw it in the theaters. Don't remember much about that experience and why it was a disappointment, but I haven't seen it since, and I certainly should give it another try, not only because of my appreciation that's grown over the past 20 years for both DiCaprio and Tilda Swinton, but also I'm such an Alex Garland fan. He's going to come up again on my list. And despite my misgivings about men, his recent film, I'm a big fan of his work. So the beach is one I need to revisit. Yeah, it would be interesting to rewatch it. I haven't for a long time either, but through that Garland lens that we've come to know so well and see what elements we might be able to pick up even in the beach. I said Logan's Run qualifies for the list, but didn't qualify for my list. That doesn't mean I eschewed kind of cheesy 70s sci-fi completely, Josh. I'm going to let the words of John Houseman's Bartholomew establish why the world of Norman Jewison's 1975 rollerball could be considered a utopia. And unfortunately, I couldn't find the clip for this part. So you could hear that gorgeous, deep, unmistakable voice of John Houseman. And no, I am not going to discredit him by trying to replicate it here. He says this, nations are bankrupt, gone. He's speaking to James Kahn's Jonathan E. None of that tribal warfare anymore. Transport, food, communication, housing, luxury, energy. No poverty, no sickness, no needs, and many luxuries, which... The man he's speaking to, Jonathan E., enjoys. There's just one catch. Corporate society takes care of everything. But all it asks of anyone, or it's ever asked of anyone ever, is not to interfere with management decisions. I uh, don't mean to resist. I'm just trying to understand. This is for your own benefit. Go to your ranch, but... Think about it and understand it. Do understand it. I like the phrasing there. All it asks of anyone. It made me think, actually, of Don't Worry, Darling. You know, there's just one rule. You're living in this perfect bliss. There's just one rule. If there's one rule, you should maybe run Red flag. as fast as you can. Yeah. Corporate society takes care of everything. And it's executives like Bartholomew working for mega corporations, not countries that now run the world and you can reap the rewards of the new world order. Just don't do any thinking for yourself. Subjugate yourself to the corporations and happiness is yours. And Khan is willing to do that. Or at least we get the sense that he has been willing to do that. Even now, he's a little bitter about the company. It seems deciding one day that he didn't need to have his wife anymore. They just said, we're going to take her away from you. We're going to give her to another person. We're going to give her to an executive. You've had your fun. But when they try to force him to retire, 
rather than continue to be the dominant individual force in this gladiatorial sport, he can't abide that. And I do mainly appreciate this movie for the Khan performance. I watched it because it was a blind spot for me as we were paying tribute to Khan in some bonus content for our family members. We talked about Thief, and I caught up with three of his performances I'd always been meaning to see. This was high on the list. This movie takes advantage of his tremendous physicality, while to me, in an interesting way, tamps down his natural charm and his charisma because he plays Jonathan E. as someone who is only alive, someone who hasn't had his individual will completely drained from him when he's bashing heads and scoring goals playing rollerball. It's a funky movie. It definitely feels like a mid-70s sci-fi flick, but I think that central conceit is interesting, that as Bartholomew explains to him, the game was created to demonstrate the futility of individual effort. So there's something great about this world that these characters live in. Like all of these utopic visions, there is, though, always a cost. There's some sacrifice. As you're describing the corporate dominance, it makes me think I should have considered maybe something like Sorry to Bother You from a couple years ago for this list. I don't know if it would exactly apply, but some of those same descriptions definitely come to mind with Sorry to Bother You. Yeah, the con show that we did was a lot of fun looking at some of that, um, the work that we had both missed. And Rollerball, I'll just say, don't don't go seeking the sequel that came out about what was that that was around like 2000 as well not a sequel the remake with uh chris klein i mm-hmm. believe right yeah um i'm not that going one. to validate the remake based on what i've heard about it with a response josh okay we'll just Sounds go good. with it let's go to my number four then which is avatar i initially wave this one off as a possibility, but thanks to its re-release in theaters over the weekend, there was a lot of conversation about it online, and I saw a couple of references to Manola Dargis's positive 2009 review in the New York Times. There, she describes Avatar as strangely utopian. So I gave it another thought, and what she talks about is she largely appreciated the way Cameron immerses the audience into the world of Pandora. And that's exactly what I loved about the movie as well. And thinking it back on it, it really does present Pandora, not just as another planet, but one in which the humanoid Navi live in complete harmony with the natural world, really in their own utopia. The word that always comes to mind when I think about those early scenes or the discovery scenes of Pandora and Avatar is teeming. Everything here just gallops and grows and swoops and streams. We've got these lemur-like creatures with four arms that are swinging among these enormous trees. Those, those small, no, they're huge also, plants, the feathery spiral plants that shrink at the slightest touch. And even the ground, I think about how when characters would walk on this ground, it would emit this pulsing blue glow. So everything is in harmony here. The Navi live in symbiosis with all of these things as opposed to exploiting them. So, of course, the exploitation comes in when humans arrive on Pandora or start to exert their influence even more to mine unobtainium. Adam, even I can't define the name unobtainium, so... (laughs) Probably Thank shouldn't goodness. have even referenced it. But the humans are where the utopia goes wrong. They they essentially ruin what you get a sense, and maybe it's distinct on my list here, that this utopia might have lasted. I think all the others 
We could mm-hmm. also think about the ways it was inevitable that things would go wrong. Maybe Pandora, they might not have. Um, but definitely the fact that it does go wrong makes Avatar eligible for this list. It is that utopia that sticks with me about the movie, though, and does have me looking forward to Avatar The Way of Water. That's coming around the corner here, December 16. I know one thing. Wherever we go, this family is our fortress. Yeah, it's really too bad that we'll be in full-on top 10 films of the year mode, and we won't get to give that movie a full review, Josh. Maybe we can find a way, Adam. (laughs) Maybe we can. So, a perfect transition into my number four. Really couldn't be better, based on so many things you said. And I'm going to go with a movie that I think is significantly better than Avatar. It's a film that has a utopia in it. Obviously, it's a short-lived utopia, at least the amount of time we as viewers get to experience it. And I'll even say it's one I might have overlooked if not for you or Sam. One of you two listed this among other nominees in our show Slack. And it's Matt Reeves, 2014, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. That whole post-title pre-appearance of human sequence is so good bit of misdirection there maybe and that it opens on that close-up of caesar's face really ominous face we hear one of his lieutenants say they are close and we know that humans have been gone or seem to be extinct based on the prelude but you still wonder as they seem to be getting into war mode whether or not they're going to battle and this existence seems fraught with that type of aggressiveness. And then you realize that they're about to go on a deer hunt. They're about to attack a bunch of deer. And this existence is one in which there is always a hunter and the hunted. Right after they attack the deer, a bear attacks one of them. But you see how the apes work together. You see following the hunt, the communal aspect of it. You see the actual community this beautiful, peaceful home in the forest that they've built in the absence of man. They've got a school for the young ones, and you get the commandments on the wall. The three phrases. One, ape not kill ape. Two, apes together strong. And three, knowledge is power. And I said there's always a sacrifice in a utopia. And I've seen this writing on the wall before. Literally. Animal farm, right? How did that turn out? But... Animal Farm's an allegory. They're not really animals. They're stand-ins for humans. And Sam reminded me of a quote that we think both comes from one of the Matrix movies. And I couldn't find the exact quote, so I'm not going to get it remotely right. But it's something, one of the agents or the creator, someone says something to the effect that they did an early simulation where everything was peaceful and harmonious and it was really boring and people just died and they had to change it. So there's a fascinating idea there that humans can't create a paradise without sacrifice, without consequences. But this movie suggests, at least from this opening that Caesar and the apes could, if only the humans didn't intrude. And when they do the utopia crumbles, 
It's born from the same things that tear down human societies. It's fear, it's paranoia, it's survival, it's ambition, certainly. But for a brief little glimpse, again, we only get maybe 10 minutes of screen time, but we understand that for a few years at least, they've lived in this kind of harmony. Unfortunately, that harmony is spoiled as does happen with utopias. Yeah, that idea of would we be satisfied with a utopia is a fascinating one that I think connects more with my number two pick. So let me circle back to that because I like that a lot. And it wasn't something that came to mind when I first thought about my number two movie, but I think it does come into play there. So I'll come back to that. For now, I'm going to go to the film that I did have at number three, which is Dogtooth. This is Yorgos Lanthimos's deeply troubling 2009 movie, a golden brick winner here on Film Spotting. I struggled with picking this one at first, too, because it's very much a tiny utopia as opposed to the vast planetary one of Avatar, the planet of Pandora. Here, it's very tiny. It only works really for two people, the parents who have been raising their children in this perverse seclusion. Mm -hmm. And now they're trying to maintain that control as they've grown into young adults. It's clear early on that something is amiss in this utopia. The two sisters and the brother, they have their own arbitrary vocabulary. Telephone, I think, they stands in for salt and, and other examples like that. They engage in these daily contests in order to earn stickers, which just seems odd, especially at their age. And how about the fact that they're told by their parents if they leave this walled yard, they'll be torn apart by cats. Many times in this movie, these kids have literal blindfolds placed on them. And metaphorically, of course, that's that's how they've lived their entire lives. Now, much like the beach, things come apart when sexuality comes into play. The parents arrange for a woman to come and service their son once a week. And her presence really has the ripple effect that goes through the entire household to continue that Genesis imagery I talked about in the beach. Here she's the apple in their deranged Garden of Eden. Dogtooth, very familiar title for film spotting listeners, especially longtime ones. But uh, I only put it on one previous top five, actually, when we did hostage movies. So I figure I could give it top five status one more time here as a utopia gone wrong. Well, you know, I love the movie Dogtooth, and I'm also a big fan of The Lobster. This was almost the second mm. Top five in a row where a Yorgos Lanthimos movie made my top five. And I bumped both Dogtooth and The Lobster down just to honorable mentions because I couldn't quite make the leap that you did that it is a utopia yeah. for the people living in it. Now, you're right that if it's a utopia for anybody, it's for the parents who are maintaining control. But as I was refreshing my memory and reading some plot descriptions about the kids, yes, it's the only world they know. So in some ways, you could ask, how can they be unhappy? They don't have anything to compare it to. But their behavior would suggest that they're dissatisfied. <laughs> yes, right? that's part of their that's part of their awakening as they're getting mm -hmm. older for sure. I think I fudged things here. I found it easier than with the lobster, which I also considered. I know a lot of listeners suggested that one, where it did seem to me that that level of dissatisfaction existed for a lot of people right at the very beginning. So yeah, taking a little longer view of here of Dogtooth, of thinking about these kids when they were younger and question less, as kids tend to do, mm -hmm. getting older is where that awakening came and where things began to go sour. My number three is the movie that you used a screen grab from when you 
tweeted out about this top five recently. It's the Truman Show. Yeah. And this idea that a lot of art explorers, that we're all the main character in our own story, that's obviously what this film is fundamentally about. In terms of being someone who truly feels that way, as if the world is revolving around you, you could see how that would be pretty idyllic. And it is for Jim Carrey's Truman. But the awakening is when you realize you are actually a character in someone else's story. And once you become aware of the machinery, your lack of agency, that sense of contentment and that sense of joy, any pleasure you might take from that is now impossible to regain. I'd also say as a utopia, Sea Haven itself, as I recall it, Josh, seems pretty idyllic, right? I mean, we're, we're near the so. water. The weather seems perfect every day. I rewatched The Truman Show in 2013 with my kids, and I know we did talk about it briefly then on the show. And I don't know how much I got into it, but I wrote on Letterboxd about how much I love the scene between Carrie and Noah Emmerich, who plays his best friend Marlon. And it's the scene when Marlon tries to convince Truman that there's no conspiracy. And I recognized a layer to it in 2013 that I didn't see or didn't really contend with back when I saw it in 98. And that's how you have Noah Emmerich, the actor, playing Lewis Coltrane, the actor, playing Marlon, Truman's best friend. And when he talks about being his best friend and how he'd never betray him, Emmerich laces it subtly, but he laces it with just enough kind of pain or guilt that you become aware of some truth in what he's saying, even as he's lying right to his face. That by playing his best friend, when he says that, he might actually mean it, that he almost certainly has become his best friend through the process of pretending to be his best friend. And this particular bit of acting he's having to do here is taking an emotional toll on him. The point is, I would gladly step in front of traffic for you, Truman. And the last thing I'd ever do is lie to you. And the last thing that I would ever do Just lie to you. I mean, think about it, Truman. If, if everybody is in on it, I'd have to be in on it too. I was just looking up some details about this movie today on Wikipedia, and you know how they have the characters list and the actor's name, and the character's name. Emmerich said this, and I didn't know this until today. He said, My character is in a lot of pain. He feels really guilty about deceiving Truman. He's had a serious drug addiction for many years, been in and out of rehab. But Wikipedia notes that very little, if any of this, is actually shown in the finished film. It's only something you know for sure because of some deleted scenes that show that character actively dealing with his guilt because of the situation. But it's there just in that that little scene. And it's layers like that. It's... Layers like Kristoff, the God character that Ed Harris plays, his genuine, I think, love for Truman, the same type of love the God surely felt for Adam. And I mean 
just like the love God felt for Adam, because that's what the movie is clearly referencing. It's not just his manipulation of a man, his exploitation of a man to do a TV show that he cares about, but there's an actual attachment to him as creator. And because of all that, I think The Truman Show's a great film from a great director, Peter Weir, and certainly a utopia gone wrong. That Noah Emmerich performance has all of those layers that you described, Adam. I haven't seen this movie in years, but as you're talking about it, I, I can picture his face. And mm-hmm. yeah, that I mean, what a what a great performance and a delicate and an intricate one as well. Um, great movie. My number six, I'll just say it. And why it wasn't on my list, I'll get to a little bit later in the show. We do have plenty of utopias yet to ruin. We're going to finish up our list when we come back, along with a review of the utopian thriller, Don't Worry Darling, plus a new film spotting poll forcing you to choose between The Beaches, Tilda Swinton, and Kate Blanchett. Stay with us. Critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. made by a young woman. Brian says he was at home with you that night. Is that right? He was, yeah. We both know that's a lie, though. That's Emily Watson in the trailer for God's Creatures, co-directed by Sila Davis. And finally, Anna Rose Homer. She's back, the director of The Fits, the movie that won our Golden Brick Award back in 2016, collaborating As a co-director here with Sila Davis, as I mentioned, she was the co-writer and editor of The Fits. And despite them working together, I think we can say at this point, Adam, we've both seen the film quite Mm -hmm. different from The Fits. And I mean, there are some some techniques and touches that you can see the connections, but yeah, very different from what I would have expected as a follow-up. God's Creatures, an A24 release, comes to theaters and VOD this weekend, and we're going to talk about it in more detail on next week's show. For now, I feel like we can say we both do recommend it. We have a chance to see it. Do see God's Creatures, not to be confused with the similarly named God's Country, which is currently playing in theaters and starring Tandy Newton, but that's one that's also gotten really positive reviews. Sounds really fascinating. One that's been on my watch list for a while now, and I really regret that I haven't had a chance to catch up with it. So God's Country and God's Creatures out now. Next week here on the show, in addition to some talk about God's Creatures and also possibly the new film from David O. Russell with Margot Robbie and Chris Rock and Christian Bale, Amsterdam, 
We will also preview the Chicago International Film Festival and talk about the titles we're most excited to see. That fest opens on October 12th, and it runs through the 23rd. A lot of high-profile titles on the slate, and that's why even if you're not in the Chicago area and can't see these films, I think you'll still be interested in hearing the movies. We're going to preview the most anticipated films for us. I'm particularly excited, Josh, about having a chance to see before it comes to Netflix later in November, the new one from Ryan Johnson, Glass Onion, yeah. the Knives Out sequel. One of the big headliners, absolutely. Last week, Adam, we announced a giveaway for some digital passes for the new Confess Fletch. Now in theaters, on digital and on demand, Confess Fletch stars John Hamm as Fletch, an investigative reporter who becomes the prime suspect in a murder case and must figure out who really done it. Great reception, it seems. I've yet to catch up with it, but people seem to be loving this. Adam, we asked listeners who entered the giveaway to tell us their pick for the most quotable 80s movie. Now, you made the case that it was an easy answer, an obvious answer. 1985's Fletch, starring Chevy Chase. I've heard we've gotten a lot of responses yeah. to this. Are most of those in agreement with you, would you say? Well, I don't know if it's easy to say Fletch is the winner, but it is my choice, and it's the movie I still probably most regularly quote from, from the 1980s and maybe from any decades. So it was nice to see many people agreeing with me, but I can't quibble with the people that also wrote in with things like Real Genius and other <laughs> oh, films that I adore and still quote to this day. We are going to save those quotes, I think, for next week. We're going to get to some of the responses and the feedback and maybe crown a listener's choice winner for most quotable movie of the 80s. That means even though you can't win the contest and get a chance to see Fletch for free, you can still send us some feedback that might make it into the show. Feedback at filmspotting.net. But it did inspire me, the response, Josh, to suggest that we devote maybe an entire month's worth of shows at some point to this idea of most quotable movies. I think Sam and I, in the very early days of film spotting, named our top five most quotable movies. Fletch had to be my number one, but kind of doing it by decade, 80s, 90s, and even on up to the 2000s and the 2010s. What movies do we think of as the most quotable, I think would be a great series. I mean, dare I say it's a film spotting madness variation where these all face off against each other. And maybe the lines from the movies are actually what face off against each other rather than the films themselves. Yeah, I like where your head's at, Josh. So we're going to save the feedback, as we said, but we are going to share the winners of this Confess Fletch contest. And those winners are, and Josh, I'm not kidding, I really don't think this listener is playing a trick on us. There is a listener whose name is Fletch, and he won. He was among the random winners. Fletch Grundman. Fletcher is his full name, Fletcher Grunman. You're kidding me. No. I'm suspicious. Congratulations, Fletch. We also heard from and are giving away a free prize to Josh Ashenmiller in LA, Matt from Des Moines, Iowa, Lisa Lowry, and Bryant Kittrell. Those are our five random winners. They're going to get a code to see Confess Fletch for free on digital. It is out now on digital and on demand and in theaters rated R from Miramax, and we do look forward to that quotable movies feedback next week. We recently touched on this, Josh. I'm going to mention it again. It's coming up October 9th 
producer Sam and I doing a little old school film spotting. We're going to be in Iowa City for the Iowa City Film Scenes Refocus Film Festival. It is all about adaptations. Every movie that's playing during the fest, they're all new movies that are out, but they all were adapted from some kind of source material. And we're going to record that segment talking about some of our favorite recent movie adaptations. This means I have reading to do, Josh. When Mm. am I going to make time for reading? Can I give you an easy one? Okay. And it may be easy because possibly you've already read this, but have you read the Marjane Satrapi graphic novel Persepolis? I have not. Okay. That would be on my list if I were doing this as a top five and as a graphic novel. It's digestible, not a huge commitment. It's also pretty amazing, as is the movie. So there you go right there. Some easy homework for you. Does it do anything particularly weird or bold with the adaptation, or is it just a really strong adaptation of really strong material? I mean, as a work of animation, it is in some ways, I would say, more faithful than perhaps a standard adaptation, yet it also, again, being animated, frees up those original illustrations and gives them new dimensions in ways that I think are pretty bold and interesting. Okay. The festival runs October 6th through the 9th, over 26 films and performances play over those four days. Our talk is at 4 p.m. on Sunday, the 9th. More information at refocusfilmfestival.org. I won't be there, Adam, but I'm also making an appearance of sorts. This will just be online. I've mentioned a few of these we've done before for the day job, but at 2 p.m. Central on Saturday, October 22, the TC Movie Club that I lead is going to be getting together to talk about Transcendent Spielberg. Of course, we're all looking forward to the Fableman, so we thought for this session of the movie club, it would be good to consider Spielberg in some way. So we'll be looking for signs of transcendence in films like Close Encounter, and E.T. and AI artificial intelligence, of course, maybe even squeeze in a little bit of always talk as well. I think that applies. So if this is something that sounds interesting to you, you can join us online. Just join the movie club. You'll get an invite. And to do all that, go to thinkchristian.net slash movie club. I've been making video essays for these, something I've really enjoyed getting into and learning a little bit more about. So I did make one on Transcendent Spielberg. That is up on the Think Christian YouTube channel. So just head on over to YouTube and search for Think Christian if you want to find that video essay. And if you want to sign up for the club, you can do that at thinkchristian.net slash movie club. We also encourage you to check out our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, looking at cinema's present via its past. It's hosted by Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott DeBias, and Genevieve Kosky. And it's part two this week of their Talkin' Tolkien pairing. They're reviewing Prime Video's new Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, along with Peter Jackson's 2001 Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Josh, are you following along with this one? Adam, I've hit a wall. I've hit a Rings of Power wall. I was all in after the first one, loved being back in this world, was okay with the setup, all the characters, episode two, more characters, more plot lines, episode three, more characters, More plot lines. I had to pause at that point. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hopefully, I've heard things begin to move a bit more in episode four. So I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with it at some point. But yeah, kind of kind of hit a little bit of a wall there. New episodes post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. So this is my favorite trick. We present our guest with a plate of boschetti, and then I will say. Why don't you eat some boschetti? 
Please, Nick, eat some biscotti. I didn't realize you enjoyed eating worms, Nick. Look, they are worms. The character Deacon in a scene from What We Do in the Shadows, directed by Taika Waititi and Jemaine Clement. Josh, how do you feel about Pischetti? <laughs> My favorite dish. I mean, who doesn't love Pischetti? <laughs> it's time for some poll results. And I love how this is serendipitously timed because we were just talking about our most quotable movies. And this is a poll question that I think really speaks to that idea because these are the funniest live action comedies of the last 10 years. We're trying to determine which movie you think is the funniest live action comedy of the last 10 years. So many good quotes like that one from these films. All of these movies would be in contention for a future 2010s or 2000s quotable movies top five. The options we gave you are Barb and Star, Go to Vista Del Mar, Booksmart, Game Night, Girls Trip, Pop Star, Never Stop, Never Stopping, The Trip to Italy, The Death of Stalin, What We Do in the Shadows, or despite us giving you 19 options there, if those weren't good enough, you could write in other, Josh. And other did pretty well in this poll, actually, Adam. Most often it's in last place, not so here. Girls Trip was in last with 2%, and then the trip to Italy with 4%. Other got 6% of the vote. Then we do go to Barb and Star, go to Vista Del Mar, receiving 7% of the vote. The Death of Stalin with 8%, Book Smart with 9%. A jump and a tie here in the second and third spots, both receiving 15% game night and Pop Star. But yes, the prize is a dish of biscotti. What we do in the shadows, 35% of the vote. <laughs> Eric Anderson says, I would have chosen what we do in the shadows, but the TV series has eclipsed and lapped the film at this point. So Matt Singer is right. Our friend Matt Singer, it's Barb and Star. Oh, I do want to catch up with the TV series. Augustus also chimed in, longtime listener, first time commenter. I'm an expat movie nerd, country and continent hopping for the past decade, and often in places where theaters are either scarce or far behind the North American release dates. So sometimes movies slip through the net. Barb and Star was one of those. But thanks to film spotting and a very long road trip, I finally listened to the review of the movie, which at that point I had never heard of. Got home, watched it, died. Died again. And have forced numerous others to watch, including, of course, my friend Trish. I love Trish. But as often she's, happens, she's with the kind age, of friend that would watch a movie you recommend. She really would. Trish would. Yeah. <laughs> as often happens with age, the funny bone develops a callus. Barb and Star, however, has been the most rewatchable movie for me since The Princess Bride. Wow. So this is a very strong vote for Barb and Star. And if I could wrap it in a newspaper and sing Streisand while I throw it into the ballot box, <laughs> I would. Okay. J.A. Prufrog says, for wall-to-wall hilarity, it has to be Barb and Star. Every aspect of the movie is in on every joke. The set design, the color scheme, the costuming and makeup, they're all contributing. It may not be my favorite comedy of the last 10 years, but it is the funniest. Do you think J.A. Prufrog knows uh, Fletch Grundman? <laughs> Are you suggesting they're both pseudonyms? Gnomes de plume? I'm just wondering if they're friends. One more comment here from Nick Muldoon. I don't often feel the need to comment on the film spotting polls, but looking at this one, I'm absolutely flabbergasted. There's some really funny titles to be sure, but the greatest of the last 10 years is missing, and that is Lord and Miller's 21 Jump Street. While many of the titles in this collection feature either great comic actors or writers, 
It's Lord and Miller's film that actually uses the form itself to generate laughs. You can see how they use their background in animation and adapt it to live-action comedy in the use of brilliant cutaway gags, visually creative set pieces, and a drug trip scene which actually incorporates animation. Not to mention the chemistry between Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum in an ensemble cast that's like a preview of future stars. Brie Larson, Dakota Johnson, Jake Johnson, and many more. Lord and Miller have put together a hell of a run this past decade, from Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, the Lego Movie, and their involvement in helping write and produce Spider-Verse. But this live-action entry for me still stands as their finest moment. This is a great choice. If you think about the discrepancy between what we all thought the movie would be when we heard that they were reheating this forgetful TV show, 21 Jump Street, and the movie we actually got is pretty incredible. Wow. Those 21 Jump Street fans, they are coming for you, Adam. Look out. That's fine. That's fine. Watch that inbox. (laughs) Thanks to everyone who voted in that poll and left a comment. Our new poll looks ahead to one of my most anticipated movies of the fall. Yours too, Josh. I think Todd Field's Tar. I'm even more excited about it after seeing the new trailer. This past weekend, it stars Kate Blanchett as a famed classical composer and conductor. For some reason, our producer thought it was a good idea to use the occasion of the film's release to force us to make a truly ridiculous choice. The poll is simply Kate Blanchett or Tilda Swinton. You can come at this however you want. You can choose one filmography. You can choose one future filmography. And the other one is never going to make a movie again, sort of. Deathmatch incinerator rules. You've got two of the great working actresses, huge variety in filmography and across their performances. And even though now there's no real confusing the two actors, Sam, it seems, has had an issue with this throughout their careers, sometimes forgetting whether that performance, that movie was a Tilda Swinton movie or a Kate Blanchett movie. Now, Josh, I don't think I've ever had this issue. Do you feel like that's been a problem for you? I don't think so, but I can see it. I get it. There are some qualities they share in common, Mm -hmm. even as I think you describe them as two of the more unique presences we have on screen. So there's an irony there. But yeah, I I can understand that. I was going to throw some movie titles at you and you had to tell us whether or not it was Blanchett or Swinton. I ever since Sam suggested this, it was Uh so ridiculous. I just repressed it. Yeah. And ignored it. You could still try if you wanted. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to throw out Knight of Cups. Knight of Cups is Kate Blanchett. Correct. What about Broken Flowers? Kate Blanchett. Hmm. Sorry. No? It's Tilda Swinton. What about okay. Constantine? Hmm. That's Tilda. You're correct. The talented Mr. Ripley. This is like some trivia spotting going on here, isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, Talented Mr. Ripley is Kate Blanchett. Yeah, you're right there. What about your beloved Curious Case of Benjamin Button? Kate Blanchett. It's a trick question. It's both. Tilda's in there too? Well, at least that's what Sam is saying, and I'm going to have to trust it. Okay. Here's where I really get tripped up is that Uh I could have let Wes Anderson's filmography determine this, right? But they've both been in we've had tilda swinton in moonrise kingdom moonrise kate blanchett in life aquatic we have a clear winner there it's tilda sorry (laughs) well yeah you could go by which movie you like better who was the oracle in isle of dogs that was tilda swinton i Mm -hmm. think it was her voice right i think so yeah (sighs) i don't know if that helps me at all grand budapest (laughs) 
Tilda, very yes. memorable in Grand Budapest. Yes, 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 yes. So maybe Tilda is is swinging this with the larger contribution to the Wes Anderson oeuvre. I told Sam when he posted this in Slack that he made me mad just suggesting the question. And when he put it on Twitter, my thought was that he should go to jail. That's how, Fair enough. Fair enough. That's how troubling, that's how disturbing this question is for us to have to think about a world in which one of these talented actresses perhaps is no longer performing, no more movies from one of these two. I really, like you, Josh, just decided to repress it for a good 24 hours. And I'll say earlier today on Twitter, I wanted to see the results of the Twitter version of this poll. So I had to make a choice and I, I just went with my gut and I'm not going to deconstruct it because I don't want to think about it anymore, but I click Kate. Okay, that tracks. So we're, we're each going to go a different direction. Balance mm-hmm. has been restored in the universe, even though the universe now is missing one of these all-time actors. Blanchett just ahead in that Twitter poll, but it has been neck and neck as it should be. You can vote in our poll and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. Everyone is acting like I'm crazy. And I'm not crazy. Our life together. We could lose this. I don't trust him. clip from the trailer for the film that inspired our top five this week. It's Olivia Wilde's Don't Worry Darling. We're going to get back into that top five here in a moment, but we did want to spend at least a couple of minutes on Wilde's film. Don't Worry Darling was the subject of a lot of internet chatter earlier this month when it debuted at the Venice Film Festival. Very little of that discussion, however, was about the film itself, but now that film is in theaters and people are seeing it. It was the number one film at the box office last weekend, and I think it's fair to say that many of the people who have seen it, whether they like it or not, have questions, Josh. So many questions. So many questions. In the film, Florence Pugh plays Alice Chambers, and I'm going to show some restraint here and not make any comments about the character names for now. Alice lives with her husband, Jack, played by Harry Styles, in what appears to be an idyllic, sun-soaked, 50s-era suburb. Things are clearly not what they seem. The men disappear each day to work for the mysterious Victory Project, led by the menacingly composed Chris Pine. The women stay at home, scrubbing tubs until they sparkle and preparing multi-course meals for their husbands. Their homes mysteriously rattle and shake in their foundations. A plane appears and disappears in the sky. And then Puzala starts experiencing frightening hallucinations. What's going on here? Indeed. Now, most... Folks who've seen this film think it looks and sounds pretty great. The production, the set and costume design, the art direction, Matthew Libatique's cinematography, the unsettling score from John Powell. I wouldn't necessarily be in agreement with everyone on that count. What they disagree on, and what I'm imagining we're going to disagree on a bit, is Wilde's execution of this ambitious concept, and even more fundamentally, the script, which was written by Katie Silberman. You went for Don't Worry Darling, Josh. I cannot wait to hear why. Really like this. I had such a good time with this movie, and I I can't explain the disconnect between my experience and everyone else's, except that 
I would give more credence to, yes, what most people have talked about in praise as being the style. I think that is a large reason for this movie's being, and there's nothing wrong with that. If you're treading familiar ground, and I'll completely admit this is familiar ground, it's a Stepford Wife story with some interesting variations, but we know what we're getting into here for the most part. Why not have fun with with how this is going to look compared to other variations? And that's what Wilde does. I think she makes an incredible step as a director in terms of use of the camera. Not that Booksmart was stayed, you know, there was a stop motion sequence in Booksmart. And I think other moments where we could see there was someone with an inventive visual mind, but here, wow, just the, the way the camera moves, but also the way she uses close-ups to convey this claustrophobia that's creeping into Alice's life. It's it's fashioning a film where this surface sheen of the 50s does begin to literally collapse in on itself. One of my favorite instances is when Alice is at home cleaning a window and the hallway behind her just starts to push in and smashes her against the window. And that's just one of the many visions, hallucinations, we can talk about what they actually are that she experiences that I think are incredibly arresting. There's another one where she goes to ballet lessons, where she and the other wives, it's part of their daily routine. And she has an encounter with one of her distressed neighbors, another wife who's having issues with what's going on, sees a figure of her in the mirror that was very distressing. I'm describing it as fun. What I mean by that is, yes, there's a lot of sauciness to the movie and the style, but it's also fun in the way it's expertly conveying psychological distress. I think it's very effective as a thriller. And as to where we're probably going to split, you know, we can talk about, I'll be eager to hear your concerns with the script. I wouldn't say, as I said, that it's the most inventive thing, but I also was not sitting there getting increasingly frustrated like it sounds like so many people are. But I think um, the script works in an interesting way with the reveal, which I don't want to get into right now for anyone who's listening and hasn't seen it yet. And the other thing we need to touch on is the performances, because I definitely have a different experience of Harry Styles' performance than most people have. We're all in agreement Pew is great, right? And this is a role that, if you look at the stuff she's done, Lady Macbeth, Little Women, and Midsommar, she's played variations on these indomitable women who either from the start know what they want and are going to figure out a way to get it or slowly realize the forces arrayed against them and are still going to do what they need to to get what they want. So I think it's a role tailor-made for her that she, no surprise, runs away with. Yeah, she's wonderful. I don't think Florence Pugh can make a wrong step. The hallway pushing in scene, there's two instances where we get a moment like that where she's confined up against some glass and is being suffocated. And for me, they were emblematic of the movie's kind of surface layer depth, Josh, in terms of it being pretty obvious that she's feeling claustrophobic. So we're going to make her feel claustrophobic in her home. Right. But the, the arguments about it, which I've seen being on the nose, I'm not sure what people would prefer. Would they rather have her, we talk about showing, not telling, would they rather have her sitting down saying, boy, something is off. I'm claustrophobic or coming up with a way to visualize that, that again, I found pretty unique using filmmaking elements. I think you can come up with a visual way to express claustrophobia that maybe isn't that on the nose, to use your phrase. There are other ways to do it. It doesn't have to be expressing it verbally. But I'll walk you through my experience with Don't Worry Darling 
And look, I knew you went for it. I, of course, have seen some of the comments on Twitter. I didn't know what the Rotten Tomato score was when I saw it. I haven't read any reviews of it still, so I don't know what any cases against it are. I was looking forward to, I think we all enjoy this if we can be a contrarian, if we can have a good experience with a film. We always want to have a good experience with a film. And 45 minutes in, I'm saying to myself, what's all the fuss about? The horror movie sound effect when a supporting character ruins the vibe at a party was a bit heavy handed, but oh well, I appreciate how Wilde has here weaponized precision where you're actually kind of terrified watching these beautiful 50s cars all pull out of their driveways in unison and they perfectly pivot together out of the neighborhood. That was really effective. And I'm thinking I'm really curious to see what the payoff is going to be. And then an hour and 45 minutes in, I'm thinking to myself, wait, so is that the movie's big sin? That it's longer and more boring than it has any right to be? That it's trying to be a very slow psychological burn that now is just hitting too many of the same beats over and over again? That's why people hate this. Oh, oh, oof. That was in real time, my reaction. I may have even said, oh, out loud, Josh, because there's the moment, just like our characters in these utopias gone wrong, where you have the epiphany and you realize, okay, this is where it goes off the rails. And since we're not in spoiler territory yet, I'll frame it this way. It's like you're walking into your newly built house and you're loving the layout. You're appreciating the care with which the house is designed. You're generally finding it inspired. And then you ask when they're going to put the roof on and you get the reply, oh, this, this house isn't going to have a roof. I don't care how great the style is, to use your term, how much you do like the layout or how inspired you think the construction is. Without a roof, it's worthless. And Don't Worry Darling is a house with a huge gaping hole above you. So does that mean a choice that was made is the wrong choice or there was no reveal there. I, maybe we should just move into spoilers because I'm trying yeah. to figure out which one it is. If if you had that immediate visceral reaction to somewhere they went, or if it was that it didn't really go anywhere that you, you found. Well, I'm just going to restate that we are going to go into spoiler territory here. The movie's been out for a week. There's been a lot of discourse about it at this point. So there is a big reveal here. You can't avoid the reveal. The movie is building up to this reveal. It's laying the breadcrumbs. You know something is off, and it is a matter of trying to see how it will pay off. So the movie sets a high bar in that it is expecting you to have this visceral reaction to new information that is presented to you, the information that tells you what the reality of this movie really is. And... Fundamentally, this is just the biggest problem. It's got a point of view problem. You can throw in all of the eerie visions and those, for me, kind of unintentionally funny scenes where the walls are literally closing in on her. None of it accounts for how she, Alice, an alternate reality simulacrum of herself in the 1950s, could put together what has been done to her corporeal body in the 2020s. And again, that's a problem. The rules of this matter when the whole film is about leading up to the reveal and the film falling into place and making sense. And I figured wrongly, 
it was a book, maybe first, that had been adapted. And I was trying to figure out how an author, just like a director, how would an author have gotten around this dilemma? It's the same, right? If 1950s Alice is our narrator, she can't know what she can't know. So either someone in the story has to explain to her what her circumstances are, or your narrator has to actually be another character, like the husband. And come to think of it, I actually think that's a way more interesting movie. Not that I wouldn't prefer to understand Alice's life from Alice's perspective rather than through a man's perspective, but considering the reveal, an approach like that actually would have added a lot more dramatic tension and nuance, which we don't get any of here in the last 30 minutes. And it actually would have made sense. So the issue is that she, I'm trying to remember what she actually discovers about herself. So you're saying she discovers that she's being trapped in a future state where she's comatose and the husband is the one who put her there. That's what she figures out. How do we know that's I'm, Maybe we do, and I just forgotten about it. How do we know that's literally what she knows? Or does she just, in my memory, she just knows something is seriously wrong. He's betrayed her, and somehow she can get out by going to that mm-hmm. Well, where they drive every day. I think day. it's two things. Two things that I latch on to, Josh. One is, I think we have to trust the language of the movie to an extent, which is, as she's piecing this all together in her mind, they're They're Mm -hmm. cutting between shots of pew and this dawning on her as we're cutting to the true reality. So the movie is is suggesting I am taking it literally because I think the movie is suggesting by implication of those cuts that she is processing at least most of this, if not every single detail. Okay. Also, she then the second part is she then says to him, what did you do? And he basically spills it. So I, I think the the sense of the movie is, is that she pretty closely figures out what the circumstances are. And I'm saying there isn't a way for her to come up with that on her own. And that is a okay. that is for me a a problem I can't overcome with the film. Yeah, that didn't bother me at all because I saw it as more of an omniscient perspective. Although we are certainly embedded with Alice, I I didn't see this as her narrating her experience. We were removed from her. And so I just took those flashes to be part of that omniscient perspective that we as the audience were now seeing this. And as far as she was concerned, things had escalated to the point that she literally had to get out. And any, you know, flashes... There is a moment, I think, when she undergoes the electroshock therapy where it kind of flashes back and forth. Mm -hmm. I did get the sense that she was seeing some of her actual, what she would see in her actual body at that point. And that may have given her some clues. I just never assumed that she knew the whole deal. I kind of knew that I just assumed she knew it was worse than anything she could imagine. The fact that she didn't entirely know made it scarier for me. Because Mm -hmm. she was in a panic and just knowing this is what I have to do now. But, you know, we can we can nitpick about this. I just I do think it's kind of fascinating. And don't get me wrong. The Matrix is a much better film. But these sorts of standards and you're not alone in in asking these sorts of questions, these logic and rules questions. And Mm -hmm. I agree a movie needs to have rules that it follows. But. My goodness, if we applied these to something like the Matrix, you know, they're they're essentially the same sort of idea where somebody's being sent into a virtual space and their physical body remains behind yet can be affected by what happens in the virtual space. 
uh, I, for me, once I thought of it that way, it kind of covered a lot of what, you know, the logistics aren't going to work 100%, but enough for me uh, mm-hmm. for the movie. And it also, you know, this is what I really liked about the reveal. I, I've heard a lot of people. That's why I asked you if it was the reveal itself that put you off, because a lot of people have been just like completely. Oh, I can't believe that's what they did. But for me, this idea of it being essentially virtual reality when, you know, we're all supposed to sign up for the metaverse any day now is very compelling to me. And to connect that to the Stepford wife theme where you've got this guy, her husband, the Styles character, who is so mm-hmm. emasculated by the idea that his wife, or I'm not sure if they're married in real life, but yeah. the woman he is with is now the sole breadwinner having to work double time so they can pay the rent that he's gone, you know, into these deep web circles of resentment that have lured him into this society that has designed this. I mean, I I thought that was kind of smart and scary as well and applicable to today in a way that justified the reveal Mm -hmm. for me. I found I found the reveal pretty interesting, actually. Yeah, I agree with you there. I can believe what they did. And I also find it compelling where we differ is that I believe if the movie wanted to effectively explore those ideas, the ideas that they very quickly and very much in a rush manner raise at the end of the film, there would have been ways to introduce the present day reality, either in a nonlinear fashion or in a linear fashion that I think could have actually really been provocative. Instead, they wanted to make the audience gasp in surprise. And, well, I gasped, but not because of what I now got to wrestle with. I gasped at how absurd it was. And after Hmm. a reveal like this, I think the point should be that you as an audience member are asking yourself a lot of why questions. And I know why in this case. What I mean is you should be considering the ramifications of what you've just learned. They shouldn't be questions of how. And here the questions suffocate the why questions like Florence Pugh covering her face in in plastic wrap. I think that the the movie puts too much on that reveal rather than it having enough. I'll go back to my house analogy, a strong enough foundation to hang that on and not expect us to start picking it apart and trying to make sense of it. The movie demands that we make sense of it. I'm not applying a different approach to it than I would any other movie. Narratively, it started to unravel for me there. And it's not just that I didn't buy that point of view issue. That's just where you tug at the yarn or you pull on the card and the whole thing collapses. You then start to open up questions about the reality of this situation. And you start to think about why moments happen like what happens between Chris Pine and his wife, played by Gemma Chan, that that utterly meaningless and unnecessary complicating moment that we get at the end of this film. The Olivia Wilde line she has where she says, but they're real to me, which is this really fascinating idea. She's talking about her kids, this really compelling notion, Josh, to your point, that she might be someone in this world who chose this reality, a woman who chose to live this life. Right. Because it allows her to still live with her kids who in reality are dead. But that character disappears for most of the movie and everything about that moment feels tacked on to add philosophical heft to something that otherwise doesn't have it. It's a completely hollow moment. 
I don't, I'm just really confused as as to what you want here because at one point it's too simple and too obvious, but then when a complication like that is layered in, that doesn't work either. I wanted to explore the complication. I wanted to mean it. It doesn't. It throws it in. But then wouldn't it be too obvious? Like the same thing as if we knew about Harry Styles' situation at the beginning. Then that's just like kind of hammering that point home, just seeing him. But see, I, I mean, it's I don't not want a to point. See the logistics of his. It's not a point. It's an idea. It's an artistic idea that needs to be explored, and it's not explored here. Yeah, and I got that idea. For me, it was not a, you know, I didn't gasp. I don't think the movie wanted me to gasp. For me, it was more of a click. It was like, oh, this is why this world looks this way. This is why the men are running it this way. This is why, honestly, I the Olivia Wilde character, it made sense why she acted that way within the world, which is distinct from how Alice acts. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it it definitely gave me gave me enough on that end. And I don't know that a restructuring would have done all that more. It might have just made it a little more rote to have seen more from his point of view. I'll go back and just say that my biggest issue that I realized about the hour 45 mark was I was surprised at how truly slow I felt this movie was. And I'm a big enough fan of slow cinema. So you can't chalk it up to the movie doesn't move quick enough. It's based on the subject matter. It's based on the sort of tediousness where I feel like I've gotten the point of her life. I think I sum it up this way. Like the residents who want to stay in their paradise, the film lingers far too long in the Victory Project rather than devoting the attention to everything that the end of this film now suggests and wants us to wrestle with. In an alternate reality, there's a brilliant 95-minute reimagined and restructured version of Don't Worry, Darling, one that I think leaves you with the right kind of questions. This one left me with all the wrong kind of questions. Yeah, I think that's entirely going to be how you respond to the style. And if you're enjoying it enough on that aesthetic level, that time's going to go by faster for you than, than if you're not, for sure. Don't Worry Darling is currently playing in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with us, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. That brings us back to our top five utopias gone wrong. Josh, we have two choices left. I don't think we're going to have any big surprise reveals here. No gasps, probably. Though my second choice here is maybe a little bit off the beaten path. You don't find it in any list typically of utopias or dystopias. What's your number two? Well, before a utopia goes wrong, in order for it to even be built, it needs a Chris Pine, Adam. It needs a charismatic leader to pave the way. In 1986's The Mosquito Coast, that person is Allie Fox, played by Harrison Ford. Now, this is 86, so Ford is emerging from the megastardom of Star Wars and Indiana Jones, and he made a calculated choice to play Fox. This is much more of an antihero than what audiences were used to from him at the time. Fox is an iconoclast, a gifted inventor who moves his young family from the United States to the Central American jungle, where he buys a small village and tries to turn it into a utopian community. Helen Mirren plays his wife, and River Phoenix is his oldest son. It's interesting what Ford does here to play a part like this. He dials up the smarm of Han Solo just a bit, dials up the hubris of Indiana Jones just a tad, and what do you have? You've got a man who's just smart, 
capable, and charming enough to be very, very dangerous to himself, his family, and then these villagers who he encounters. Look around you. How did America get this way? Land of promise, land of opportunity. Give us the wretched refuse of your teeming shores. Have a Coke. Watch TV. Have a nice day. Go on welfare. Get free money. Turn to crime. Crime pays in this country. What's interesting (laughs) in a lot of these speeches that Ford gets in the movie is that even as Fox rails against the commercialism and industrialization of the United States, that's essentially what he brings to this village. And it's represented by this giant four-story contraption he designs that makes ice amazing in the jungle, right? It makes ice, but also stands over the village like a metal god. And Fox isn't content. I think this is what I was thinking about, Adam, when you brought up this idea of can humans be happy with a utopia? He's pulled this off. It's essentially worked, this village. They now have ice, but he's not content with that. He insists on taking it to a neighboring village, a group of people who have never encountered anyone from outside of Central America before and essentially invade it. What he's basically doing, he's franchising his invention in a way. And this does start to lead things to crumble. Paul Schrader is the screenwriter here. He's adapting the novel by Paul Thoreau. So there's a lot of God complex stuff going on. The director, Peter Weir. And this is why Truman Show is number six for me. Couldn't have two Weir films on my list. He also made Picnic at Hanging Rock, Dead Poets Society, so many great movies. And while Weir is always in control of the story, I think this is true of a lot of his films, his camera mostly feels as if it's only there to observe. He has a very anthropological touch as a filmmaker often, I feel like. I've wanted to see this one since 1986. I remember when it came out. Of course, I'm obsessed with Harrison Ford at that point for Star Wars and Indiana Jones. Also, this idea of building a community in the jungle just sounded so adventurous Mm -hmm. and romantic to me. I'm glad I did not see it then. I don't think 12-year-old me would have appreciated all the nuances going on here and probably would have been a little devastated at the Harrison Ford I saw and what happens to him. So probably for the best, it took me until now to finally see The Mosquito Coast, my number two utopia gone wrong. Yeah, still a regret for me. And especially as someone who's generally a fan of Peter Weir's films, including all the ones we've mentioned so far, I don't really have a good excuse for it. I do really need to see it. And as you mentioned, a film like Dead Poet Society, I wonder if we could make a case for John Keating's Classroom from Welton Academy or maybe the cave where the dead poets meet is itself a sort of utopia. My number two, I said it was going to be a little bit of a weird choice. Let's see if you will go along with me, Josh, on this one. And I was thinking about it because I'm going to be honest, I was struggling with this list. Once I applied my pretty rigid criteria and then I eliminated the films that I'm not a big fan of, I wasn't left with that many options. And one idea that kept reverberating with me as I was thinking about these choices is something I mentioned when I was talking about Peter Weir's The Truman Show my number three pick, and that idea of that Harris character playing God in this scenario and Jim Carrey's character Truman being this Adam figure. Well, there's one filmmaker, because I'm going to talk in a moment too with my number one about the idea of being expelled from paradise. These utopias gone wrong are stories that are all indebted to that first story of a utopia gone wrong. 
and because of the attainment of knowledge. I know I'm crowding your turf here, Josh. I apologize, but go for it. There's one filmmaker who has pretty much made a career out of directing grand, poetic Adam and Eve allegories, and that's Terrence Malick. Think of John Smith and Pocahontas out in nature in the new world, very similar to the Avatar storyline that you referenced with one of your choices. The return to Jamestown, one of my favorite scenes in that movie after leaving paradise. The little village in A Hidden Life, the golden wheat fields of Days of Heaven, and so on. I mean, so much of the Tree of Life, maybe the entire depiction of Waco in the 1950s is a utopia. That house in Waco is a utopia gone wrong. But Tree of Life's in the Pantheon, not eligible for this list anyway. Vying for my favorite Terrence Malick film, though, is his first film, and that's Badlands, where you get these wonderful extended scenes of Sissy Spacek and Martin Sheen after he's killed her father. They're on the run from the law, and they're out in nature together, and they're detached from society and all of its rules, and they get to do whatever they want. They get to make all of their own choices. SpaceX character says, one day I carried 30 pounds of wood a distance of five miles. Another day while hiding in the forest, I covered my eyes with makeup to see how they'd come out. She's trying anything, anything foolish that she otherwise wouldn't get to do in her normal everyday life. Now in this new world they're creating, albeit a temporary one. She can do whatever she wants. They dance together. They read in the treehouse. They walk along the soothing water. It's beautiful, and it's perfect, and then it's not. One day, while taking a look at some vistas in Dad's stereopticon, it hit me that I was just this little girl, born in Texas, whose father was a sign painter, who had only just so many years to live. It sent a chill down my spine, and I thought, where would I be this very moment if Kid had never met me or killed anybody? This very moment. This very moment, it hits her. The awareness of her mortality, of the fleetingness of her situation, and her feelings largely for Kit. The relationship doesn't unravel completely here, but from then on, from this moment on, when she gains this knowledge, everything between them is different. I have no quibbles with this. I especially can't. I was just looking up my review of Badlands and yeah, that whole forest sequence. I said a place where nature can be captured in full bloom. This is the first of Malik's many screen Edens, all of which inevitably come to a violent end. So there you go. Completely agree with you there. And yeah, good pick for this list. All right. Number one, I am going with a Lego movie and I have to give credit to listener Ross Bratton here. He threw this out. As an option on Twitter, at R. Bratton, if you want to follow him, honestly did not cross my mind at all as an option. So perfect for this list, though. Now that I think about it, I have to have it at number one. Plus, I named the Lego movie as the best film of 2014, and I don't think I've had it on a single top five list since. So long hmm. overdue for some top five recognition. The utopia in the Lego movie, of course, is Bricksburg, where construction worker Emmett Brickowski, voiced by Chris Pratt, believes that life is just great. Good morning, apartment. Good morning, doorway. Morning wall, morning ceiling. Good morning, floor. Ready to start the day. Ah, here it is. Instructions to fit in have everybody like you and always be happy. Step one, 
breathe. Okay, got that one down. Step two, greet the day's smile and say, Good morning, city! Of course, life's not great. It's actually the tightly controlled design of Lord Business, voiced by Will Ferrell. With the help of Elizabeth Banks' wild style, it'll become Emmett's quest to bring this supposed utopia down. Now, I cannot praise enough the creative animation, the incredible wit, the sharp observations about childhood and play that drive the Lego movie written and directed by Christopher Miller and Phil Lord. This is truly one of those films that proves my maxim. Anything can be great. Just think about the scoffing, including my own, when this project was announced. Exactly the same thing that was brought up when we were talking about our poll options, Adam, when it came to Miller and Lord's 21 Jump Street. The Lego movie also gave us, and this connects to the utopia element, a brilliant song, courtesy of songwriter Sean Patterson and Tegan and Sarah. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. Everything is awesome when we live in our dreams. So yeah, you can blame Ross now that you're going to have that stuck in your head for the rest of the day. I'm just mm-hmm. going to thank him for suggesting the Lego movie, my number one utopia gone wrong. I was going to say, no wonder this movie resonates with you so much. You said anything can be great. Sounds an awful lot like everything is awesome to me. There you go. Yeah. A motto to live by. Yeah. I saw Ross when he shared this choice on Twitter and had a feeling you were going to go with it. So an honorable mention for me didn't make my top 10. I don't think that year. And as you said, it was your number one. So I knew how much you loved it, though. I am a fan of the Lego movie as well. My number one. This one won't be a surprise to any longtime fans of the show. And I'm going against my criteria in one respect. I said, no outright dystopias. And in 2012, this was my number one. And I think it's an accurate characterization. But I do think that 2012 me was maybe a little bit more misguided than 2022 me is. Because in Never Let Me Go, there are really two utopias that are created. One is real and lost. One is real and let's go with extremely problematic, if not downright deplorable. And that one is society itself. So if you haven't seen Never Let Me Go or read the Kazuo Ishiguro novel that it's based on, you should stop listening. I would hate to ruin this movie for anybody, even though it has been over 10 years since it came out. But the opening tells us, and it's it's very factual and to the point but also a little bit elusive. It leaves a lot of information for us to fill in as the movie goes. It says the breakthrough in medical science came in 1952. Doctors could now cure the previously incurable. By 1967, life expectancy passed 100 years. So we know we know the the what, we just don't know how. And from that description, you understand that life is still life. This isn't a utopia where everything is supposedly now perfect. And everyone is just living a life of pleasure. There's still everyday struggles, but those struggles aren't compounded by the struggles of most debilitating or deathly diseases. Charlotte Rampling's character, who's a teacher at the school that the main characters went to as young kids, the main characters being Andrew Garfield, Kira Knightley, and Carrie Mulligan, she says to them later when... Andrew Garfield's character and Mulligan's character come to visit her and are seeking some good news. She says that Hailsham, 
the school they went to was the last place to consider the ethics of donation. So this is what the opening title doesn't tell us, that these these kids who seem like regular human beings are actually clones and they've been created. They've been manufactured to provide parts to people who might be suffering from those debilitating or deathly diseases. And she says, you see, it's not an ethical issue. It's just about the way we are. If you ask people to return to darkness, the days of lung cancer and breast cancer and motor neuron disease, they simply say no. Do you understand? So who wouldn't want to live in that world where those things don't exist anymore? Sounds idyllic, but the implication, are you willing to harvest and kill human clones to do it? The other utopia here is Hailsham itself, the school where they live and they grow up together. It's lost to these characters as they get older, as they have to leave, as they become aware of what their purpose really is, as they're expelled from this Eden. But society has also decided we just get this little insight from a line that Garfield's character Tommy says. Society's decided that even places like Hailsham aren't really necessary anymore, that we don't need to give these clones such comforts. He says, I don't suppose you both heard that Hailsham was closed. The only schools left now you hear they're like battery farms. Now we're back to the matrix. I'm sure that's an exaggeration though. Now we don't know for sure. He doesn't know for sure, but I think we can believe the talk. And I also think this movie, besides being my favorite film of the year it was released, one of my favorite films really ever. I love that it's this utopic slash dystopic vision and has that science fiction element to it that so many of these films we're talking about do, but that it's set in the past. There's something that turns all of the normal sci-fi conventions on its head. And you have to kind of rewire how you're processing everything about the movie when it doesn't have that futuristic element to it. What I'm not sure about is if our lives have been so different from the lives of the people we save. We all complete. Maybe none of us really understand what we've lived through. Or feel we've had enough time. You you are skirting the line here between dystopia and utopia, but yeah, knowing how much you love this movie, how could I not allow it? So never let me go. Good pick. I'm so relieved. Those are our top five utopias gone wrong. Josh, do you have, in addition to, I know you said earlier, your number six was my number four, The Truman Show. Any other films you want to throw in? Yeah, I thought about Playtime, Jacques Tati's 1967 vision of this perfectly modern city that comes undone by human folly. I've had that on two previous lists and again, didn't quite perfectly fit. So I decided not to put it on. How about Midsommar, speaking of Florence Pugh, in another possibly utopian society gone wrong, Mm -hmm. you might argue if anything was ever right there, but they certainly present it that way. A lot of listeners on social media suggested WALL-E how that spaceship itself is somewhat mm-hmm. presented as a utopia. I think it's that absolutely applies. Yeah, yeah, I could have gone with it on my list for sure. And then another animated suggestion didn't cross my mind, but both Ben Ashworth on Twitter and Nicholas Pineda on my Larson on Film Facebook page suggested Zootopia, which I do like quite a bit. We mentioned earlier the Lanthimos films, Dogtooth and Lobster. Couldn't make a case for them matching my criterion, but I did want to bring them up again here. Two films I really love. Pleasantville, another film I've talked about before here on the show, has made some top fives, I think qualifies. 
a little bit of a Mosquito Coast riff, perhaps, from a few years ago. The Viggo Mortensen starring film Captain Fantastic is one I do like, similar to Harrison Ford's character, lives in this idyllic state out in nature with his kids. That does unravel. Two that came up a lot on social media were not only Wally, but also the Spike Jones film Her. And I love both yeah. of those movies. But as I thought about them, I I guess I threw in the towel and didn't have the energy to sort out whether or not they were utopias <laughs> or dystopias. A lot, lot has been written about that subject, Josh. And then I saw someone else mention Martha Marcy May Marlene. And I think it's fascinating to think about any cult movie in yeah. which that main character thinks they're living in an idyllic state and then has been removed or removes themselves from it and has to deal with that, whether or not that's a utopia gone wrong. And as I refamiliarize myself with the movie and the situation that Elizabeth Olsen's character finds herself in, I just couldn't go there. I couldn't make the case that there was anything utopic, even for her and her perspective, right. about that existence for the John Hawks cult leader character. Yeah, you don't get a lot of utopia in that movie. I did think about that, but also thought, you know, cult movies, cults, that's that's cult victims. Those are entirely different lists. So mm -hmm. I set that one aside as well. Again, those are our top five utopias gone wrong. We would love to hear your picks or any other thoughts about the show. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Josh, that's our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, you can find Adam at Filmspotting and I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at Filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And if you want to do this to yourself, you could vote in the current Film Spotting poll, which asks you to choose just one. Kate Blanchett or Tilda Swinton. Or don't. Just thumb your nose at Sam and say, I don't have to answer this question. That's another option, I suppose. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you could subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in limited release this weekend, you can see the new Western from veteran director Walter Hill of Warriors and 48 Hours fame. It's Dead for a Dollar, stars Willem Dafoe and Christoph Waltz. You have my curiosity, Walter Hill. Riotsville, USA. This is an archival doc about the U.S. military's response to political and racial injustice. It's playing at the Gene Siskel Film Center here in Chicago. In wide release, Bros, a new romantic comedy from the director of Neighbors and Forgetting Sarah Marshall. That's Nicholas Stoller. The movie stars Billy Eichner. Josh, you're the guy writing a book about horror movies. You're going to devote a chapter to the really creepy looking smile? Well, the trailer. Yeah, creepy, but not all that intriguing. But then we heard no. this from Tasha Robinson, friend of the show, not for the timid or the tenderhearted, but people who love the ring and it follows are likely to enjoy this mashup of the two of them as well. So that has my attention. Anytime you mention it follows, which I do write about quite a bit in the book, actually, Adam. Yeah, that's something I might want to see. Out on digital, you could see Hocus Pocus 2 on Disney+. Plus. You could see Russell Crowe and Zac Efron in Peter Farrelly's adaptation of a Vietnam War set novel called The Greatest Beer Run Ever. That's on Apple TV+. Plus. And God's Creatures, starring Emily Watson as a protective mother in a small, close-knit Irish community. That's co-directed by one of our Golden Brick winners, Anna Rose Homer. Next week, we will have a little bit of talk about God's Creatures. We're going to preview the Chicago International Film Festival coming up here in October. We're going to talk about the most quotable movies of the 1980s, and we might 
get to some talk about the new film from David O. Russell called Amsterdam. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Betty Lavendero. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.